research. We move on the word of research. Can't afford not to. <laughs> How's it going, Mitch? It's nice to talk to you again. I know it's been a while. Yeah. Fifteen minutes. Well, you know, time zones and all that. I know you missed me. That's right. Welcome back, everybody. This is part two of our episode on research and resources. I am Joe Dowd, once again, joined by... Mitch Riggs, once again, joined by... Say your name again. I already introduced myself. Do it again. Joe Dowd, joined by... <laughs> You're so vain, Joe. You're going to talk about yourself all the time. People don't they, don't... they don't come in here to listen to you talk about yourself. Now they come for me. <laughs> all right. Research, part two. Electric fluid. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Um, that's so, the name of this show. That's right. We'll see if we get taken down. <laughs> All right. So, uh, where did we leave off, Mitch? Uh, research. Uh, we were going to talk about ways not to research. Yes. Um, what do you think are some ways to not research? Or what, what? are some things that aren't research? Watching Gone with the Wind and then uh, basing your uniform off that or uh, the blue and the gray with Patrick Swayze. I thought, I thought Patrick Swayze did North and South. Yeah, that's what it was. North and South, I'm sorry. Get them, you know, get them mixed up. Those classics. Yeah. Uh, in blue and gray, were most of the Federals wearing surplus Indian Wars sack coats? I think so. Which is correct if you're doing Indian Wars, but... Maybe that is a good resource for uh, Indian Wars. <laughs> for Indian... <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, Here at the Living Historian, we see the glass half full. That's absolutely right. Uh, yeah, the glass is half full. It's half full of piss, and it's what we're soaking our buttons in to give them patina. Oh, God. <laughs> there are people that do that. I I know, that's oldest uh, anti-authentic uh, living historian propagandas out there. Uh, another good thing, especially for World War II, and I know a ton of people who do this, it, it's a public conception. They watch Hogan's Heroes and they're like, yep, that's what the Germans were like. <laughs> and it's just like, oh no, that's not what they were like. Oh wow, I didn't even think about that. But let's yeah. also, let's not forget Bandwagon of Brothers. Hey, you might be unaware of this, but World War II was only fought by the Waffen SS and the 101st Airborne. No, <laughs> there were other units, but they didn't fight. Oh, okay. That clears that clears things up then. Yeah. Well, and Brad Pitt. Oh yeah, they, they they had tanks too, but a lot of people don't know this. Those were 101st Airborne guys that got transferred into the Armored Division. <laughs> that was all easy company. They did everything. That's right. They were. It, it's kind of like in Civil War how everybody does either the Iron Brigade or no, the Irish Brigade or the Stonewall Brigade. Yeah, I mean it was the Iron Brigade, the Irish Brigade versus the Stonewall Brigade, and then the war was over. That's right, and that's coming from that that Deep Stonewall Brigade. <laughs> I'm guilty of doing 101st too. So. Yeah, it's, it, it's our guilty one hundred and first. Yeah, I mean if, if that's what you like to do. Yeah. 
But you know what? I think that's a very good segue into the idea of research because there are popular units in military history that people like to portray. And there's no fault in that because, I mean, usually these are units that distinguish themselves in battle, in war, uh, and they deserve to be remembered. But there's only so many small local Civil War events I can go to and see a Zoav, a Sharpshooter, a 79th New York Highlander before it's like, oh my God, does somebody wear a sack coat? Exactly. Well, I have mad respect for the people that do the the units that people don't do. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like, if I see a guy out there that's, uh, you know, reenacting some obscurity like the bloody bucket it's like you know good for you Mm -hmm. yeah uh now so back to the topic uh at hand i think that there is there's a misconception in reenacting that often discredits reenactors and living historians in the eyes of conventional historians um And I think it has to do with research because, and I think we're all guilty of this for when we all first started reenacting. When you start in living history and reenacting, your research is whatever your first sergeant tells you is correct. Absolutely. Especially if you're starting out in a non-hardcore campaigner group which i'm sure 99 percent of us did yeah um and you know sometimes your uh first sergeant or your your captain or whoever is the uh kind of unit leader uh sometimes you know they are a solid historian and they have done great research other times you know it's it's somebody who's been reenacting for 20 25 years and they're set in their ways and they've worn the same thing they have since the 90s and haven't improved their kit and unfortunately that's how um uh misconceptions and kind of uh normalization of inaccuracies i would say uh the word i'm thinking of is escaping me but uh, you see these trends in reenactors that i you know i think a good example would be um blousing your trousers into your socks for civil war reenactors now it was done we uh, there's many many uh references to the historic record of soldiers their trousers into their socks i mean it makes sense i've done it mitch i know you've done it yeah i've done it uh it can help from brogans and it's muddy out i mean you don't get the bottoms of your pants all wet and dirty for when you're trying to sleep yeah, it keeps the ticks out and everything. Uh, however, it it was taken to an extreme. I mean, I remember when I first started reenacting, I mean, hell, you would see battalions of soldiers out on the field, and every single one of them had their pants tucked into their socks. And only two out of ten guys had period-correct socks. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. The rest would be the Cabela's... Uh, gray knit socks absolutely and so mitch that's that's probably what we would call a reenactorism right 
Oh, there's there's tons of reenactorisms out there, but yeah, that's that's one. And, and it, I think it it go it comes in waves. It's kind of like fashion trends. Um, like, do you remember when everybody wanted to wear camp shoes? Yeah, I, I mean, I have a pair. Oh, I do too. They're wonderful shoes, but oh my god, it was getting to the point where like every, I think it and it got really bad during the one fiftieth, where it's like every campaigner group out there half the unit was wearing camp shoes it's like like i get it it's like we talked about in the last episode i mean it's something quirky that like you could do that not everyone was doing until you know everyone started doing it and then it was like well where's the bourbons at right um you know and the some other uh officers not wearing any insignia that was a big one for a lot of the campaigners for a while Again, it's recorded. We know they did it, but sometimes it's taken to the extreme. Mitch, what are some examples from some of the other time periods you've done that you can think of? Oh, what are you going to put me on the spot for? Because I like to watch you squirm. (laughs) Uh, 101st Airborne airborne guys wearing aviator sunglasses. That's like the big thing and chomping on stogies. (laughs) I was about to say that, the cigar, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know where that started. If it started with like Band of Brothers with uh, oh, what was his name, Bull Randleman or whatever, uh, mm-hmm. he was always chewing on a cigar. But that yeah. seems to be like a big one. Like these guys out there wearing their aviator sunglasses and their piss cutter hat and smoking on a cigar, riding around in their Willie's Jeep. <laughs> you paint such an eloquent. Yeah, I was gonna say you paint such an eloquent picture. I mean, if they were, like, generals or something, like, yeah, go for it. But, like, these guys are just reenacting as privates. And it's like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. So, anyways, yeah. So, and I think all of that, all of that stems from the, I wouldn't even just say, like, the lack of willingness to research, the the lack of knowing how. Because most most reenactors and living historians were not, professionally trained historians uh we do it at we do this as as a passion as as a hobby most of us um and so a lot of times uh they're not doing we're not doing this by default it's just people don't understand how do you do correct and uh, wholesome research it goes back to the pilot episode, how we talked about the difference between a reenactor and a living historian, because there are guys that, I hate to say it, they just don't care. <laughs> they do not, they're out there to burn powder and they want to go to the hoot and shoots and to them. Drink beer around the get, fire. Yeah. I mean, it's, we're going to get away from our wives for the weekend and, you know, this is what we like to do. So, yeah. I mean, there, there is, if you've never done living history and you've only done reenacting, for the most part, you're setting your ways and you're not changing. And mm-hmm. I think that's what gives it a bad stereotype of, oh, Lord, here it comes again. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree there. Um, you know, and I think, <clears throat> uh, like I said, I don't think that it's it, it's not even a willing unwillingness to learn. Uh, it's just a lot of a lot of these folks just haven't been introduced into like here is how you actually do proper proper research now i'm not looking to get into like here here is how you 
formulate a thesis and this, you know, please use the Chicago Manual of Style for Citations. Uh, you know, that's not the point of this. This is more of a discussion just on conducting research, uh, which we already covered in the previous episode. So, uh, Mitch, what, what else do you think, what, are you, what else do you think are some poor examples of, well, off, yeah, sorry, I lost my train of thought. What are some poor examples of research that guys will do? Like, we talked about movies, right? Okay, you just led me into a great thought I had. Okay. It's it's our favorite movie, but okay. what what do you see in every friggin' episode where you see a Confederate soldier in the movie Gettysburg? From the waist down, what is he wearing? Sky blue pants. I took him off a dead Yankee. We did it. <laughs> they'd have had it, they'd have used it. Yeah, no, come now. <laughs> now a good uh, example of that would be a cold mountain when they're stripping uh stuff off the dead yeah but that's their own right and it's also again it needs to be impression specific because um take lee's army uh during the gettysburg campaign um they hadn't encountered really a strong union force since Chancellorsville. Absolutely. Where are they they getting these blue pants from? Oh, they found them somewhere because they are yeah. all over the place in Gettysburg. Yeah, that's right. Now, if you were to look at, let's say you were doing a soldiers and uh, Confederate soldiers impression from Fredericksburg, or excuse me, shortly after Fredericksburg, then I could definitely see sky blue trousers, uh, federal overcoats, because they were left in command of the field. Absolutely. So they had the opportunity to, to forge supplies like that. But what also... Was the battle, what was the battle during the Valley Campaign where they marched through and the Yankees just left everything and that's when they all got Union overcoats? Oh, uh, it's escaping me. I can't remember. It was in the winter of 62, wasn't it? Yes. But don't quote me. <laughs> do your research people yeah that's right open a book read the open description um yeah and you know the but it's not just civil war you know this is these are issues that permeate in every era uh i think that a, a real problem and this might uh this might ruffle some feathers with some people but one of the biggest problems i have in pre-civil war reenacting is the buckskinner because it's like you you can't decide on a single impression so you've decided you're going to do all of them <laughs> so you're going to have your french and indian war waistcoat and breeches and then your revolutionary war era hunting shirt well actually no i wouldn't even say that it's more like a fez parker buckskin hunting shirt you've got your hawkins centerfire uh you know and for for those people who do like rendezvous uh seven eagles and things like that okay different story that's not reenacting a living history that's something else and i don't really know what you would call that i consider that I, i consider that period bushcraft yeah 
that's not right. Or that they that they can't do that. Uh, yeah, that's not right. That's that I mean, some people think, but most people get into that uh, less about accurately portraying somebody from that era, and it's more people who are interested in like muzzle loading, uh, competitive shooting. Um, the skills, things like that. But unfortunately, that will sometimes bleed into reenacting. Um, I saw some photos. Look at on... the NSSA when it first started. No, look at the NSSA now. <laughs> I, I don't know what they're up to now, but I know when they first started, they were wearing like mailman pants and like Levi's jackets, and they were like, we're union. Yeah. And again, it's like, are they, would you consider them reenactors? I'd consider them people that like to shoot authentic weapons. Yeah. And see, that's their specialty, because I tell you that probably an NSSA shooter could probably tell me a lot more about Civil War weapons than I could. But I could probably tell them a lot more about you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Um, so yeah, so you get these reenactorisms though, and some of them are just really hard to break. And I think good living historian is understanding or not being afraid to break the mold of those around you. So maybe the what only frame tense. Not well, in a winter setting. That okay. That kind of that brings us to a, a different discussion. I think, in terms of the authenticity of a particular individual, like what their authenticity goals are. I think it's a reenactorism because I mean, how many company streets do you go down where it's nothing but A-frame tents? Well, wait, wait, wait. Preface this. What era are you talking about? I'm talking Civil War Gettysburg. How many A-frame tents would the Confederate Army have had during that three-day battle set up in the field like that? None. They would have done... They would have used uh, flies. Absolutely. They would have used the terrain around them. I mean, how many sketches have you seen in, in period photographs after the battle where their breastworks and stuff are still left around Little Round Top and I mean, how even Devil's Dead, there's that one awesome picture of uh, where they bivouacked the night before at the uh, bottom of Culp's Hill. Yeah. Uh, it's, it is entirely it, what the impression is. Now, if you are portraying Union soldiers during the Gettysburg campaign or something like that, um, then no, you shouldn't see any A-frames. You should be seeing dog tents, shelter pads. However, if you are portraying the Northwest Army during the War of 1812, then you would have seen A-frames. They were using squad tents. So that one is more of a, you know, that one, it's less cut. It is more situation-specific. What's the impression you're actually doing? What were they using in the revolution? I believe squad tents. When they had them. Frames? Yeah. Or I think uh, in the 
beards tend to refer to them as wedge tents. But but no, what I was getting at uh, originally was, um, um, you know, being able to break the mold um, or break the cycle because perhaps you are you're doing living history or reenacting and maybe you haven't been in it for that long. Maybe you've been doing it for a long time and you really, you want to improve your impression uh, and you want to improve the impressions around you, but maybe the only group that is accessible to you either by location or some other reasons, um, maybe they're not the most authentic. Um, And you have to be the one to instill change if you want to see it in this hobby. Uh, you know, a lot of the the folks that we know in reenacting, the stand out that we always remember are the ones that were, you know, the first to do this or they were the first to, to do that because that is how you improve this hobby by right. instituting change. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, What's the number you know, one I, thing you see that makes you like just cringe when you go to a an eighteen twelve event? Oh, okay. When I go to an eighteen twelve event, yeah. Um, either. Ooh, that's a tough one because I see a lot of pretty stuff at eighteen twelve. Probably, I would have to say, the Buck Skinners, the 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 people that pretty much go of the flintlock era with the exact same impression. Uh, the one that I described earlier, you know, like your coat, Parker, Dan Crockett, uh, buckskin shirt, uh, your oh my gosh the big baggy capotes that still have the modern Hudson Bay company tag on the front of them. That's, that's probably what I don't like seeing. Now what about for civil war? But also, I don't know, man. I've, I've become so desensitized. <laughs> yeah. Same. It's like, it's like you just block it from your brain now. Um, now, that being said, after I've just poked fun at people and just alienated uh, all five people that are listening to this podcast right now, um, those are things that I hate to see. I'll be event. I'm not going to walk up to that person and say, you know, you shouldn't be here, you know, fix this or don't come back. Because I don't believe that that is a constructive way to support this hobby and to ensure its continuation. Absolutely not. I think that is a big, 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 big problem with reenacting is people going about, in their mind, trying to help somebody by just ripping them apart. And then when they're gone, they're like, where the hell did everybody go? Right, right, exactly. Uh, now, what I would—it's kind of like that, that Twilight Zone episode with the guy that like has all the like he likes to read, and then he's in the the bomb shelter, 
And he's like, now there's time. And then his glasses break. He's like, I'm the best. Well, no one else is reenacting with you because you're an asshole. Is that actually a Twilight Zone episode or is that just a parody from Futurama? No, it's an actual Twilight Zone episode. Okay, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, You know, what I try to do in the situation is... Now, first off, I'm not going to walk up to somebody that I do not know and just start ripping into them or even just start giving them suggestions because they'll go on the defensive and it's, it's not constructive. The best thing to do is to engage them and talk with them. Uh, you know, for instance, if was is wearing a, a capote, which for uh, the dear listeners who aren't aware of what that is, that's a, uh, it's a trade blanket coat. They were very, very common in the uh, 18th and early 19th century especially among fur traders and folks out on the frontier. Anyways, just think about um, like what stoners wear. That's what it is. It a terribly it, accurate description. It's the 1800s um, version of a drug rug. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that pithy explanation, Mr. Riggs. Hey, I got you. Some people, they don't reenact. They want to listen. I'm helping them that, out. That's right. We're all inclusive here. Um, but no, uh, I would come up to them and I would ta- start talking to them about capotes. I, you know, I, hey, you know, I see you're wearing a I just got to make one. You know, talk to them a little bit. It seems like they don't want to engage, then, you know, don't engage them. But if they actually want to talk, well, then talk to them. And you can mention, you know, I was just reading this great article about blah, blah, you know, and they say that they actually looked more like this and they, you know, and prov- don't just say they're wrong. Provide reasons or pro- provide ways in which they could re- improve. And the same goes for online. Like, don't just start bullying people on these Facebook groups because they're just going to sell all their crap and never come back. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we're, we are all in this hobby together regardless of what era and if we all want uh if we all want this passion of ours to continue you know we gotta get along but all right i'll get off my soapbox now so uh another thing that i actually wanted to talk about while we were on the topic of uh research patterns historic patterns um they are numerous, and their quality varies greatly. Um, there are some really phenomenal pattern makers out there. Now, unfortunately, closed their doors in recent years. Uh, but there is a. I've some noticed of them haven't updated their ordering stuff since the 1980s. <laughs> yes, that that too. And sorry, I was at there for a second. Um, when choosing patterns for recreating historic apparel, you need to be very, very careful because more often than not, the patterns that you are going to buy today are copies 
of copies of patterns that were drafted 20, 30, 40 years ago. It's kind of like a really terrible game of telephone. With like every time somebody else takes this pattern and creates a new pattern off of it first. Um, the best way for pattern making for historic garments, in my opinion, but it requires a lot of work, is to learn how to draft patterns for whatever time you are trying to do. Uh, for Civil War folks, I recommend uh, Louis DeVere's system of pattern drafting. It's available online. It can be a little it can be a little hard to understand and read, um, but there's actually, there are different sources and even, I think, some master classes available specifically for learning to draft with that pattern system. I was going to uh, say, Neil, a, Hurst, Neil Hurst Taylor Shop, doesn't he do master classes? Uh, for Revolutionary War? Yeah, he might. I think uh, James Williams does too for 19th century. Um, but actually draft patterns is great because for one, you do not need to go out and purchase a specific pattern for the specific item that you're making. And that comes in handy, especially if you're doing something obscure. To use myself as a personal example, um, War of 1812 uniforms are very thin on the ground in terms of surviving originals. So a lot of uh, the reproduction uniforms out there that you see have come from a lot of composite work done over the years of what we think some components of the uniform was. And that's true for a lot of eras, especially the farther back in time you go. And so understanding how to actually draft and use the period methods I think is such a leg up in recreating historic apparel. Now, that being said, there are some, there are still some really phenomenal patterns out there. Um, my personal favorites probably, and again, uh, I'm not endorsed by any of these. These are just the ones I found that I like. Uh, personal favorites would be laughing moon patterns, period impressions, or past impressions, excuse me, past impressions. And a lot of the patterns actually that have come out of Williamsburg are quite phenomenal. Don't forget about Charlie Childs. I was just about to say, now when it comes to Civil War military uniforms, I would say that Charlie Childs, uh, County Cloth, they have probably made some of the... Okay, and, well, and this is... Talk about... This well, is, no, this is in re patterns. Well, hang, hang on for a second. This is in regards to patterns that are available on the market for you to buy. I'm not talking about patterns that certain sutlers have created for their own use for reproducing garments for sale. I'm talking about patterns that you can actually purchase and use yourself. Okay, but now that we've discussed patterns... Where do we find the fabric and textiles to actually make the clothing? That's a great question. If you ever find a store that has all of it, let me know. Needle <laughs> and thread um, in Gettysburg. Yeah, that's right. Uh, right down is, the street to the button bone. That's right. Uh, 
again, like everything else we've discussed, it, it entirely depends on the era that you're portraying, what you're recreating. But um, for anything from, I guess, what you would call the wool era, um, needle and well, and the thing is, needle and thread in Gettysburg, they don't produce any of their fabric. They just carry it from other vendors, and most of the vendors you can buy directly from them. Such as Wamba and White? Well, Wamba and White doesn't make... They don't really sell... Well, they sometimes do, but they really don't sell wool by the yard that much, I believe. They primarily use that wool for producing their own garments for sale. If you want to actually buy it by the yard, uh, the two that I would recommend the most would be uh, B&B Tart or Tart Textiles, I think is what they go by now. And uh, William Booth Draper. So William Booth Draper handles more 18th century and early 19th century. And he is a, that is a great resource for wools, linens, mixed cloth. One of the few places you can get good Lindsay Woolsey from, even though you really pay for it. Uh, like anywhere else, it's an expensive cloth produced. And uh, Tarte produces very fine jean cloth and woolen material and charlie child's produce produces very nice jean cloth as well now jean cloth is primarily be... used for civil war but it has some other implica uses uh for earlier time periods i know a lot of southern uh war of 1812 and creek war reenactors use jean cloth a lot that's what i was just gonna say if you want to be quirky and uh pre-civil war break out the jean cloth and uh, draft man patterns pre-civil war yeah, uh, that was one of the things that really surprised me when I started doing the earlier time periods for like the Flintlock era, um, because I grew up doing Civil War. Is I go to these eras and I don't see any jean cloth. Now again, it is it is uh, jean cloth is kind of a geographically limited material. You really didn't see it that much in the north. In the northern states, um, you saw it a lot in the south, and you Wasn't see it a it little. Originally called slave cloth. Like it goes by a couple. Yeah, I've seen it referred to that. I've also seen it referred to as Virginia cloth. Um, <clears throat> and there's some other variations. So, I think there's Virginia jean, which is the regular jean cloth that. Uh, most folks are used to seeing the half wool, half cotton. And then there's Kentucky jean, which uh, I believe Doug Harding, who is a uh, a park ranger at Gateway Arch National Park, uh, has done a lot of extensive research into this, uh, the different flintlock time periods. And he said that Kentucky jean was its own material, which was half flax, and half wool. As if it couldn't get worse. <laughs> Instead of uh, fabric made out of sandpaper, it's fabric made out of steel wool now. It's Brillo pads. What else you got, Mitch? Um, buttons. Talk about where I get the buttons. Um, 
See that one is that one is difficult. It, again, it is it's very difficult to answer some of these questions um, while not being biased to one particular time period. Let's say uh, you wanted um, Revolutionary War buttons. Where would you go? So a lot of buttons for Revolutionary War and uh, <laughs> even into like. Uh, the post-war and War of 1812 era, they're kind of spread out. I mean, there's not really a single vendor out there I know of that will have whatever you need. So a lot of the the main Rev War vendors, such as Townsend's and Smoke and Fire, they're going to carry a lot of buttons. So I would say generally buttons you, you can usually get from a lot of your main vendors out there. Um <clears throat> And that's also true for Civil War. Now, in Civil War, of course, we have, at least right now, we have the Button Baron, who has been the god of Civil War buttons for the last, what, 40 years almost? Absolutely. Yeah. So, again, uh, questions like that, it's kind of hard to... It's hard to give a short answer to because, again, reenacting is so extensive. I mean... There's also, I'm sure there's vendors out there that specialize in making World War II buttons. Well, it's nice about World War II is you can still find original buttons. Yeah. Relatively cheap. Mm-hmm. I know that's one of the big things um, German reenactors do. That's the first thing they do is chop off all the, because uh, a lot of these uniforms are coming out of China. So the first thing they'll do is chop off all the Chinese buttons and throw original buttons on there blouse same thing with um original insignia they'll use original insignia too Mm. which you know if you can find it relatively inexpensive throw it on i mean it it really improves the look of your impression oh yeah absolutely um and i think i think that might actually be an idea for a future episode of uh the debate of using original items in reenacting I mean, that that could be its own episode. I think it depends on what it is. Well, let's save it for an episode. You'll just have to wait and listen, dear viewers. <laughs> All right. Well, Mitch, we are, we've already been on here for a while. Uh, is there anything else? Yeah, actually, there is. Um, I forgot to mention in the last episode, there's a fantastic website called Der Oostzug. I'm probably saying it wrong. I'll, I'll post it on the Facebook page. The uh, website was actually taken down, but it is a phenomenal source for World War II German reenacting. I mean, it has everything from how to get your hair cut to how to fold Litzen and put it on your uniform correctly. Um, another one is Hard Scrabble Farms, which has PDFs for, I think, World War II up to Vietnam for American stuff. They have the, the GI paperwork and... Um, all your different passes and money and things like that. And also Facebook. There are a ton of Facebook groups that are dedicated just to research. I know I'm in one and it's phenomenal. It's called the Vietnam. It's called Vietnam DIY Mark. Yeah. Vietnam DIY. And um, all they have is like random crap, like Kool-Aid packets from the sixties. You can download and print out and, you know, keep your Kool-Aid in a period packaging and the K rations and the cigarettes and anything you need for Vietnam. Uh, 
another thing that I feel like we should go over is the authentic campaigner. There are a ton of things on the authentic campaigner that you can look at and different skills they teach you how to do. I know that there was one on how to make a wheel cap that I tried to follow along to. I did it for like, what, Joe? 10, 15 minutes before I stabbed my fingers a thousand times and gave up. Yeah, I think that was um, the extent of your selling career. That was it. The Liberty Rifles, they've also, no matter how you feel about them, they've, they've posted great research articles out there. So that's definitely something to look into. Um, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I definitely think Facebook is a great option for research because there are so many different groups with so many like-minded people that you know can help you out along the way you just uh well i will (laughs) i will preface i would preface that by saying facebook can be a great source references um but always try to try to confirm anything that you're that you can that is mentioned like on social media because again you know reenactorisms that's a that's a way that they can spread and um be simple as if you somebody posts something that you're interested in you know just comment like this is really interesting um you know where'd you learn this because if they say like oh well ashley you know uh if you look at this photo collection at the Library of Congress, you can see da da da. But if they say like, "Oh well, you know, this is what my unit has been doing for years," and you know, I don't remember where we exactly found it, you know. Absolutely. So take it with a grain of salt. And also, if you post something and you know you get negative backlash, just brush it off. Because right. I know that was a a big thing. I, I've I've seen so many kids. And I mean, that's what they're kids. I mean, these are 16, 17 year olds who, you know, saved up and bought a uniform only to have their hopes and dreams destroyed by some guy who thinks he's God's gift to reenacting. Which that's not cool. Help them out. Right. But what about you? Is there anything else you can think of? You know, not really. Uh, I think this we could probably call it good for this episode. Uh, I think this has been really great discussion, and I hope that it's inspired you to uh, start conducting your own research and uh, you know help uh, help the passion of living history reenacting. Thank you. Yep, we all have to help each other out. That's right. All right, well, if that's all we got, I'm done babbling if you are. I'm done. I'm just had about all the all the hot air out of till next time. All right. Talk to you guys later. Thank you all for joining. Bye.